The Ninja Turtles have battled many strange beings and adversaries throughout their career, but on this episode, we're going to see them tackle the very legends of world myth itself. This is Full Price for Late Pizza. Welcome back to Full Price for Late Pizza, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles podcast with me, your host, Mike McGee. You can check out more of my movie-related and video-related content over at youtube.com slash TV, as well as follow me on Twitter at TV. So for this particular episode of Full Price, I wanted to delve into a specific issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the initial Mirage Comics run. Volume 1 of Ninja Turtles consists of the first 62 issues that were self-published by primarily Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. But this particular issue was outsourced to another writer and artist. There was a period in TMNT Mirage history where Eastman and Laird would again, hire out to some other talent to put their own spin on the Turtles mythology because at the time, the Turtles were this hot new indie property and were kind of considered a little bit of a blank slate for people to try out ideas on. And some of these ideas stuck around and actually became part of regular TMNT canon. Others were just more one-offs. And the style of these particular issues that weren't primarily helmed by Eastman or Laird, it's a mixed bag of quality, I feel. There are certainly some issues that really resonate and some that are really well put together in terms of concept and execution. And then there are some that really try for a different type of turtle story or different style and experimentation on that front. And sometimes they fall short. Revisiting the Mirage Comics run, there are some one-off issues and some multi-issue arcs that I really enjoy. And then there's kind of more bizarre throwaway type of humor stuff that I guess you have to be in a particular mindset to really kind of appreciate and get into. Uh, And then there's some deeper dives into more philosophical and uh, more, I guess, cerebral type of narrative It can go down a rabbit hole of its own, perhaps, pretension. I feel this particular issue has a nice balance of everything. There are humorous moments. There is certainly plenty of action. But also, it's it's delving into a deeper kind of concept about belief, about intuition, as you'll discover here, and about recognizing myths, legends, and legacy for what they are. Uh, Before I get into this... I do want to say there's going to be spoilers here. If you do want to first check out the story that I'm about to go into, it is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Volume 1, Issue 43, and it's called Halls of Lost Legends. This was originally published in January of 1992, so the Turtles marketing juggernaut is already well underway for a couple of years at this point. Everyone is probably recognizing them more for the Saturday morning cartoon and the movies that have come out. And the Mirage comic is still chugging along at its own pace. But this is certainly in that period of time, like I said, where other creatives were 
putting their own spin on turtles. And in this case, the creatives involved are writer Paul Jenkins and artist AC or Craig Farley. Paul Jenkins actually is a writer who would later go on to become very prominent in what a lot of people consider to be the big two, DC and Marvel. But he got his start editing and writing with Eastman and Layard in Mirage and then would go on to bigger characters such as, or at least bigger characters at the time, such as uh, Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. I actually remember his run on a couple of issues of, I believe it was Spectacular Spider-Man. He revitalized certain concepts and characters in Marvel with the Marvel Knights run he did. It's interesting to come back to this uh, story now and to see a little bit of what he would bring to those like I said, the big two companies here at work with the Mirage run. A.C. Farley is best known primarily as a TMNT artist. He got his start with the company there. He ended up being one of the bigger kind of leads in terms of artwork on the series. He drew the covers for the whole City at War saga that rounds out volume one. And there are some really, really epic shots on those covers. His work is truly stunning in this issue. And I feel it adds a different dynamic to what the turtles can look like, especially when they're put up against more, say, photorealistic type of characters. Uh, His design sense when it comes to, say, more human type characters, very much there's exaggeration, but also it's not quite as stylized or as cartoony let's say, as, say, Eastman or Laird's artwork can be. So it's really interesting to kind of see this more grounded take on the world of the Turtles, even though the Turtles themselves still have a little bit more of a cartoony type of look. Not outright cartoony. They are very boxy in in terms of their uh, body structure. Very short, stout, stocky characters, but still very expressive. Uh, The one thing you'll probably notice if you read the issue and look at the artwork is that this is one of those instances where the turtles don't have the white eye slits that they're probably best known for when they go into battle or when they are um, just existing. Like they're typically sometimes artists will draw them with blank white eyes like a lot of characters like Batman would have, for example. Here, they got really expressive, really full kind of pupils going on. And it took me a while when I was younger, I remember, getting used to that. Even though I'd seen the turtles on TV and, you know, you can see their eyes through the masks and everything like that. Here, though, it it, it looks like these are close to real life turtles if they were mutated and not horribly mutated, not like Michael Bay turtle mutated. Anyways, (laughs) let's delve into it here. Like I said, there's going to be some spoilers because this is going to kind of be a play-by-play of the story and its many surprises. So at this point, this story in terms of where it places in continuity, I feel it takes place after their uh, conflict with the Shredder finally came to a head. And at that time, the Turtles were kind of in a nebulous state where they seemed to just float from adventure to adventure. At this point, they established they would go back to Northampton from time to time to hone their skills, to kind of get away from things for a little bit. That's when I feel one of my favorite arcs took place as well was post uh, Battle for New York or Return to New York, I should say, not Battle for New York. That's the River Trilogy. Here, though, 
they are out in the woods running an exercise that Splinter has tasked them with where they're supposed to hone their intuition. This initial opening is going to be very familiar to you Star Wars people because it's essentially putting the blast shield over your eyes. They go out to the woods with just blindfolds on and they're supposed to wander around and spar with each other in the woods. And at one point, Donatello makes light of the fact that this is just like Star Wars by even saying, like, Luke, trust in the Force. I mean, I mean, he paraphrases Star Wars overall. I think probably you probably get in some trouble quoting verbatim uh, lines straight from Star Wars. He basically is mocking the exercise and that ends up giving away his position. Raphael ends up being able to land a punch on him, which which frustrates Donatello, who kind of has had it with this stupid exercise, quote-unquote. It's kind of interesting to have a story where Donatello is the source of tension and the source of team dynamics being frayed a little bit. In the case of this particular narrative, he is very skeptical. And I feel this absolutely runs true for who Donatello is at his core. He's a very by the numbers in terms of seeing the world as is and not seeing what it could be. He's scientifically minded. He relies more on straightforward evidence to disprove or uh, prove his belief in things. So he needs something more solid than what is being offered in this exercise. So being asked to just trust his intuition and his instincts, being asked to kind of, again, reach out with his feelings more than anything else, it's a struggle for him. And I love how his characterization comes through pretty strong here. Like he has a moment of self-reflection because he feels like he is letting the other guys down. Uh, Leonardo at one point says, he's like, I expect better from you. That's why, you know, it's frustrating because I know you have this within you. And Donatello tries to acknowledge that. And Mikey says, just learn from your mistakes, man, and go with it. Michelangelo again is a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more uh, sensitive in this particular iteration of the Turtles franchise as opposed to being a party dude. He's more, I guess, of a level head than anything else. And Donatello kind of takes everyone's words to heart, tries to resume the exercise, but ends up (laughs) face planting right into a stone wall. And then it's revealed that amidst the woods is this gleaming, mysterious tower that apparently just showed up out of nowhere. And so the Turtles are immediately intrigued by this. The exercise is put on hold and they decide to investigate. And it's at this point, like, you'll really be impressed by the level of detail I feel that AC brings to his artwork. The reveal of this tower is, it gives a sense of scope that is rarely, I think, seen in Ninja Turtles stories because of the fact that a lot of their narrative takes place in, like, say, dingy alleys or the sewers, that a lot of the backgrounds are a little bit more straightforward because the stories demand things to be a little bit closed quarters or a little bit less grand. Here, though, AC puts it out on the table with this really gleaming spire that is just erupting out of the forest and it is it gives a sense of scale to be sure. So the turtles gear up, they decide to investigate and enter these seemingly abandoned halls and it puts off a very eerie vibe. They come across at one point a figure 
lying in rest uh, upon an altar of some kind. And they believe that he's dead at first, but they soon discover he's more like in stasis, frozen as it is. And as they're trying to figure out what this place is, make heads or tails out of how it could have shown up out of nowhere, an impish type of character is seen in Donatello's peripheral and they track him down being like, hey, what's the holdup? Where are you going, buddy? This character says, you're early, being very cryptic from the start. And so the turtles immediately are kind of on guard and very skeptical about should they trust this guy or not. This individual introduces himself as Loke. He basically welcomes them to what is called the Halls of Lost Legends, and he serves as their curator. And then it's from there that he begins to explain a little bit of what this place is. Essentially, since the beginning of time, since man first came into being, and there's been belief structures, and they became so palatable, so tangible to humanity, that pretty soon these beings that they put their faith and their belief in became sentient, became self-aware, became what everyone believed them to be. They became substantial. And as more belief structures and more myths were cultivated and created, the population of these beings increased dramatically. So they would create this sort of sanctuary where gods and beings and creatures of all kind could congregate and coexist. And then Loke starts to talk about something that could ring very very familiar for us in this type of story, wherein basically people stop believing in fairies as it were, if you're going to go by the Peter Pan kind of parallel. The wonder of these stories and these creatures and beings waned as humanity trudged onwards, as it became more, I guess, enlightened, quote-unquote, as it started to become a world more reliant on things seen than unseen. And that affected these beings greatly, where they would then lose their powers over time. They would lose their potency, and eventually ebb and flow into standstill nothingness. So the turtles are coming along slowly to this idea of like, okay, okay, we're going to go with this. Donatello is the one in the group who still, at this point, is pretty standoffish when it comes to accepting this particular narrative. He decides to go off on his own to seek out some answers for himself as to what's going on. He can't believe that it's that straightforward. So he decides to go rogue, and Loke encourages the others to find him. And so they decide to follow suit. Donatello has a little bit of a head start on them and makes his way to a particular room that has the word Asgard over its doorway. And he decides to pop in, and lo and behold, I believe the person he finds is Odin, sitting there on a throne, surrounded by some other Viking or Norse-influenced type of beings. But they're all, again, standstill, all here but not here. As Donatello is investigating, he finds a reflective shield, wherein, in the reflection, he can see that Odin is weeping. Meanwhile, the other three have found themselves in a bit of a bind as they entered a completely different room and have entered the chambers 
of a being known as Kronos. Kronos, for those of you who are familiar perhaps with Greek mythology, was one of the main progenitors of what would become the Olympian gods. Best known probably for being, uh, I think he was a titan who devoured his young because he was afraid of being usurped by his young. And eventually he was usurped by his young. might know them as the Olympian gods, Zeus. So the turtles find themselves in a battle with Kronos. And the whole time he is talking about how he is going to eat them, how he's going to devour them, how he believes that they are his children. And the guys, of course, are cracking jokes a little bit at his expense. They're holding their own against him. At one point, Leonardo says, yeah, well, if I'm steak, you're toast. Doing pretty well with just ninja weapons against essentially a Greek titan. And as Kronos brings the heat literally to the room with heat vision, I I don't know how accurate that is to the original legend or not, the original mythology, Donatello comes to the rescue with the reflective shield on his arm and basically saves the day. And so they end up escaping from the room, locking Kronos in there. And that's when Donatello reveals that, yeah, something is amiss here in this place. Locke isn't telling us everything that has to do with the Hall of Lost Legends. So they keep investigating, keep making their way through all these corridors until they find themselves in a grand hall. And it's in this grand hall where there are several more creatures of myth and folklore frozen in place. Uh, There are some, some silhouettes, let's say, in the hall. You'll automatically recognize a very big lumberjack type of silhouette with an axe, so it's incorporating even tall tales of, say, Paul Bunyan. And then you see Locke at the stair of the main hall saying, you all shouldn't be here, trying his best to try to convince them to leave, and the turtles will not yield. They're like, you're not telling us everything. We just ran into Kronos. Something's up here. How come some of these legends or some of these mythological creatures are still active? And basically, Locke is like, I'm warning you, get out of here or it won't go well for you. Donatello puts two and two together, casts the reflection of the shield on Loke and realizes that, again, spoilers at this point, it's not Loke, it's Loki. That's right, Loki, the god of mischief, is the curator of the Halls of Lost Legends, or at least is posing as the curator for this Hall of Lost Legends. Now, a lot of you are probably very familiar with Loki in recent years, thanks in no small part to the Marvel juggernaut and cinematic universe and Tom Hiddleston's portrayal of Marvel's version of Loki. I'm not as well-versed in Norse mythology, but I do know that Loki's narrative and story takes a different turn, perhaps, compared to the more amped-up <laughs> hyper-science-fiction reality of Thor in Marvel. In this case, he's a very, very malevolent character, so kind of holding to that trope of Loki, as it were, that Marvel goes with. We don't really get a lot in terms of his specific background as this version of Loki, aside from initial motivation to take over the Hall of Lost Legends. But He's revealed as his true self. He's no longer this impish character. He stands over the turtles. He towers over them, uh, has very kind of a menacing presence about him, decides that, you know what, let the games begin. You all asked for this, so I'm going to open a portal 
to some of my fellow miscreant legends and myths, and he decides to bring out from the depths Cerberus, a three-headed dog with a very uh, disgusting, bug-eyed, uh, multi-bug-eyed appearance for the dog heads. It's like it's not even technically a dog at this point. It's just a creature with three heads, but it is creepy looking. Uh, he summons from the Celtic Marsh a spirit known as a Fidel. He summons a manticora, or I guess a manticore, who has a venomous tail and the head of a lionish type of man. And then the biggest one yet, Grendel from the legend of Beowulf. I love the Beowulf legend and all its permutations and reiterations that people take with it. I love what a lot of creatives do with the legend of Beowulf. And Grendel absolutely is one of my favorite fictional mythological creatures. And this Grendel doesn't disappoint. He is a towering behemoth, plated up with armored skin, has fangs, gigantic bullhorns, has sort of a... If you know, say, Legend of Zelda has a Ganon-ish type of face, like early Ganon from Legend of Zelda type of creature. These are the four combatants that go up against the turtles. And again, in this uh, art style, Farley's turtles are pretty diminutive. They're short, stocky warriors. We got Michelangelo going up against the Manticore. We got Raphael tackling Cerberus, who he calls Fido. We have Leonardo going up against the Marsh Spirit. And Donatello, lucky Donatello, gets Grendel. And he's very happy about that. He's like, oh, great. They're going toe-to-toe with their respective adversaries. And the action sequences that play out in the panels are very kind of stunning. Like, I really do love the epic scale that's being delivered with all these blows. Like, Donatello is just barely getting by from being crushed by Grendel. Leonardo gets entangled in the Marsh Spirit's vines and the Fidel's vines. Michelangelo, I think, at one point gets stung by the Manticore, and Raphael is trying to just ride Cerberus out, wear him out at one point, and just stabs two heads a sigh each through the eyes. It, it, it's a, it gets to be a gruesome fight, too. Again, this is Mirage TMNT, so the fights do get a little bit more visceral than they would in any other medium. For those younger readers, uh, viewer discretion advised. In fact, what I'm reading this an issue from is uh, the reprinted uh, classics line that IDW put out where they basically cataloged a lot of the non-layered and Eastman stuff in these colored uh, trade trades. And they actually say that at the beginning is like, this is coming from the Mirage era. It's a very different type of turtles than what you're probably accustomed to. So viewer discretion advised. They hold their own against their monstrous counterparts, their monstrous combatants, and end up doing them in. They all team up on Grendel at the very end, and it proves to be actually the image for the uh, original cover for issue 43, you get a sense of like how epic this fight can be. Determined not to be beaten, Loki is getting ready to summon another spirit or another creature from its nether realm, what have you. Michelangelo puts a stop to that by whipping a nunchaku at his head. (laughs) And so the turtles subdue Loki and Leonardo basically gives him an ultimatum. He's like, release all these legends all these beings that you've basically imprisoned because at this point they've figured out yeah that loki is the one responsible for keeping the legends in stasis so that he could populate the hall 
with more of his kind of being or legend, the more monstrous, the more destructive forces. And Leonardo saying, let everyone go or I'll kill you. Loki, ever the trickster, tries to pull a fast one on him, crafts an illusion that this is actually Splinter continuing their training. And he's like, congratulations, my sons, you've passed the test. Now, Leonardo, let me go. The training lesson is over, but no one's buying it. Leonardo is ready to deliver a killing blow to Loki's face. Loki uh, chickens, essentially. He blinks and says, stop, stop. I yield. I yield. And then he relinquishes his power over the hall. The legends become mobile again. They become active and sentient again. Loki will be imprisoned in Ragnarok. (laughs) Nice. And I believe this character that they're speaking to is supposed to be Merlin. I'm not 100% sure. They never outright say who this character is, but he is more of a wizardly type of figure. He has an owl on his shoulder and a staff. I I believe it's Merlin that they're talking to, but I, I'm not 100% sure. He basically says, like, thank you, turtles, for what you did. We used all our power to bring you here early so that you could help us so that because we knew that you would ultimately trust your intuition trust your instincts, and reveal the plot for what it was. They essentially say, now it is time for you to go, but until we meet again, until you return, we hope that you spend time with those who love you. And it fades. It's a really kind of beautiful transition. It fades from Merlin wishing them well, or whoever this wizard is wishing them well, to Master Splinter waiting for them in the woods by a campfire, where he's probably looking to debrief and process with them their experiences out in the woods. And so the turtles are happily uh, reunited with their sensei. They're sitting around the campfire and are sharing this adventure that they just had. Splinter gives props to Donatello for being able to finally trust his intuition. So that that's a good bit of character growth, I guess, that took place in this issue for Don. Uh, he was, I'd say, the turtle with the most focus in this issue or had the most focus put on him. So it's really cool to kind of see that come full circle. And then one of the turtles mentioned that like, there's still something that they're thinking about, which is Loke and the other uh, beings of the hall keep mentioning that the turtles are early and splinter pretty much spells out that that you can only deduce that this means at one point you yourselves are going to take up residency in the hall of legends. I I believe it's Leonardo who asks, it's like, how can that be? No one knows we exist. We hide, you know, from society. We can never become legends. Or could we? And then final shot in the woods. The Hall of Lost Legends. The spire is out there gleaming in the night sky. It's a really beautiful kind of one issue adventure that I feel works so effectively at what it needs to be without being overly complicated or delving too much into a more philosophical type of exploration. Not saying you can't have that taking place in a story like this, but it also understands that it needs to clip along at an adventure's length pace, needs to have beats of action, needs to have some character-based moments with the turtles, because I do feel that is sometimes an issue with some of these guest writer artist runs, is that the turtles become kind of secondary to other uh, focal points. Like There are times where they'll introduce characters And certainly these are characters that they invest a lot of their time and effort into, but then the the turtles get next to no development or next to no spotlight time. So in this case, I really do like the idea that it's just 
Jenkins taking the turtles on sort of a tour through mythology and belief in his own fun, action-packed kind of way, but still like calling and reflecting upon the idea that I guess we can't lose track of some of the uh, myths and legends that's Uh, encouraged our imagination and our innovation as well. I think that's a primary theme, especially with this, in that Loki or Loke mentions that some of the beings became inactive due to people forgetting them, forgetting where they come from to some degree. And I can get behind that message a little bit. As much as I love the idea of humanity innovating and evolving beyond where it is now to better places, absolutely, I feel there's a place for context. There's a place for revisiting our shared myths and beliefs and getting a lot of creativity out of them. Certainly. That's how my imagination keeps fueling on is through coming back to not just stuff like the turtles, but also stuff like Greek myth and, um, some of the other, uh, types of creatures. My, my grandfather was an author and Uh, an expert on Filipino lower mythology. He cataloged and delved into the different interpretations of myth and legends surrounding Filipino folklore because the Philippines has its very, has a very interesting hierarchy of creatures. We have Aswang, we have vampires essentially in the Philippines. We have other kinds of demons or goblins. We have mermaids. We have a creature called the Tikbalang, which is a horseman, essentially, that towers over the landscape. And the only way to beat him is you have to ride him like you would a horse and pluck three hairs from his head and he will become your servant. Like it's stories like that, that and these fables that I remember him telling me when I was younger, he would start reading me stories when I visited the Philippines and I would chime in like, what happens next? What happens next? And reading this issue again of Ninja Turtles reminded me a lot of the joy of discovering myth that I remember having when my grandpa, when my Lolo would read to me uh, about these myths and legends that he had spent a lifetime learning and cultivating for himself. So to be able to have that represented in, you know, what I consider to be my modern day mythology and legends and stuff like the turtles, it it was a cool kind of bridging point. I, I can appreciate it's a very simple message, certainly, but I feel it's effective, which is the power of myth, the power of storytelling, of keeping storytelling going. And it ties in, I feel a lot to the main conflict with Donatello, the power of intuition, of trusting your instincts, of trusting something more on belief than on rationalization and thought. That can be something positive and optimistic. It's certainly good to rationalize things for ourselves, for the good of others, for the sake of, say, quantifying (laughs) research and uh, quantifying um, knowledge. But also there are times that you have to trust your gut. And I feel that is absolutely reflected in the idea of belief too. And again, belief can be whatever you want to be. I'm not necessarily a very devout religious or spiritual person, but I can appreciate and recognize the power that belief can have for us. And in this issue, you know, it brings it on a more physical level where, yeah, the myths and legends are nothing without us to believe in them. That's kind of a fun angle. And I'm I'm sure it's been reflected on in other properties in other forms of media, especially media that does delve into mythology 
or things such as the Greek pantheon of gods and things for and so forth. One of my friends uh, who I hope to have on the podcast, she is a big fan of the Lore Olympus webcomic. And that is in and of itself a revitalization of Greek myth, a way to reinvigorate interest in Greek myth to some degree while adding a new dimension, some new characterization to the figures that typically populate the uh, Greek pantheon of gods. And that's what I feel is being done here with even this one issue is it kind of recontextualizes certain myths or certain beliefs. Uh, Loki, in the case of being the antagonist for this one, sure, he's played more as probably he would be played in, say, a Marvel story. But the fact that there's also this incentive to not just look out for himself, but to kind of populate the hall with his own kind, what they consider to be the deviant sort of myths and legends. When I feel at the core, it's like we need both. We need the uplifting type of idealistic paragons, as well as the cautionary tales, as well as the gods and beings that uh, represent what our cautionary tale should be. Pandora's box, for example. Yeah, it's it's a really truncated exploration of belief and mythology, but I feel it's done really, really well. And for one issue, like there is a lot of, I feel, world building and action at play. The Hall of Lost Legends doesn't make an appearance again in official TMNT media, as far as I know, but there is a shout out to it in a fan project that I was made aware of a couple of years ago. There was this fan comic called TMNT Odyssey, which serves as sort of the official, not the official, but the quote unquote official end to the Mirage continuity of Turtles. It's sort of like Crisis on Infinite Earths, if you're a DC fan, that sounds familiar, I'm sure. It's Crisis, but for turtles. And it was actually backed by a lot of the creative minds that had dabbled in turtles before. Jim Lawson, an artist for TMNT, provides a majority of the artwork. And it's really stunning, but also weird to see this fan project get artwork from an official TMNT artist like that. It's actually kind of wonderful that they're able to recognize like, you know what? There's a story to be told here. I'll back up the art for it. But the Hall of Lost Legends has like a brief cameo towards the end of the story and kind of comes full circle on the promise that was made in this issue, which is the turtles were early, but they will return. And it's an image of the turtles in Splinter taking up their place in the hall as legends. I, I kind of like that little callback very much. So it demonstrates like, yeah, they've grown far beyond their indie roots and it becomes something a little bit bigger. And I can appreciate that. If you haven't read this one yet, I do recommend it, even though I kind of spoiled the whole thing for you. <laughs> like I said, hopefully you read it beforehand and you could delve into it. Jenkins writing is very strong here. I, I, I think he has a strong sense for character with the one issue he comes in and works on for this. Clearly Donatello had a very clear-cut arc that I felt worked well for who Donatello is supposed to be, especially in this iteration of Turtles. Like he's not an overly science nerd like he's portrayed in other versions of the franchise, but certainly he is the more grounded kind of turtle in terms of being logical, in terms of taking things more at face value because that's the evidence that's presented to him. So for him to try and trust his instincts and to trust his intuition, to trust in what he can't see outright 
I think that's a good development, a good wrinkle to his character. I don't really have a rating system necessarily. Let me see. Well, since this is full price for late pizza, let's go by the slice, shall we? Let's say usually it'd be like five, but since it's pizza, let's go with a whole eight, a whole eight piece pizza. That's that's a large, right? That's a large deep dish. Let's say this is this is about a seven out of eight, seven slices out of eight. I guess what I would have liked more for it is perhaps it could be expanded on a little bit. It does feel kind of rushed at times because it's just one issue, even though it's paced really, really well. I would have loved to spend a little bit more time in this hall. I would have loved to see like what other kind of explorations the turtles could have had, what other discoveries, what other myths could have been incorporated into this story. Certainly they were pulling from a wide range, but I felt it was also a very um, Anglo Saxony uh, core, which is fine. You know, that's, you know, that's probably what's known by the writer at that time. So Certainly, that's no problem outright, but it would have been kind of cool to see if they pulled from, say, Native American uh, beliefs, if they pull from, let's say, Hindu or Arabic beliefs. Maybe there's a, a jinn somewhere in there. Uh, that would have been kind of cool to expand it outward, this concept of, okay, this is a hub for all these mythological creatures and creations. What else is there? And maybe if it maybe branched out into, say, two issues. The reveal of Loke as Loki could have been held over for the second issue. But for what it is, it's it's effective. I guess that the 7 out of A is just me kind of wish fulfillment. Like, oh, man, what else could have been in that hall? There we go. A solid 7 out of 8. That is going to have to be our episode for today, everyone. I hope that was fun, just me recounting this one issue. Like I said, I'll delve into more multi-issue story arcs as time goes on, but there are certainly the one-off stories that I really like and would really like to share my enjoyment of on here. So I hope that was interesting for you. Again, you can check out these stories uh, that weren't helmed by Eastman and Layard. You can check them out in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles classics collections that are trades done by IDW. They've been out for quite a few years now. I believe there was six of them. Again, some of these stories are an acquired taste. You might want to thumb through the trades just to make sure like it's stuff that you would want to revisit or want to read again because uh, there have been certain issues contained within the trades that I'm just like, I'm not reading this again. Not because it's outright bad or anything, but just because it's not my sensibility or maybe it's too absurd humor based or things like that. But if anything, more so for the artwork. If you love like just so many different art styles being on display, I'd say these classics stories are where it's at because the the palette for turtle art in these issues is varied. You can have AC's very clear-cut sense of style and dynamic posing and more realistic type of depictions of human characters in this issue. And then you can have something completely wacky and more just like cartoonish in another issue. I'd recommend checking out these classics and finding the turtle stories that would work for you from this run. That has been full price for late pizza. Thank you all for listening. And till next time, I guess keep on chowing down on that pizza and discovering your own legends. Mm-hmm.